Okay, so let me start you with a shocking fact. Are you ready? Okay. I think I've watched this movie more than any other Soderbergh film. Get I out do. Of town. I know. Ocean's Eleven. Yes, I think I've seen this more than Ocean's Eleven. Um, like I've seen this movie, right I want to say ten times, fifteen times. I I um, believe you because I know what type of uh, films you like, and I. I this is a good one. Yeah, this well, is a fucking good. It's one. good, but like nobody remembers it, and I feel like nobody saw it either. Like it kind of mm-hmm. just showed up and like it disappeared. Did by yeah, yeah. Uh, I, wasn't it the same year as that other one we talked about that you hate so much? Uh, Full Frontal isn't it like the same year? I don't know. It was Full Frontal two thousand two? Uh, yeah, it was. Then yes, yes, it Can is. You believe that shit? It's the same year. That's the same year, completely different movies. Yeah, man. This guy's I mean, you know how much I love Soderbergh. Uh, you mm. know, which is why it's funny that you're taking on a Soderbergh project this this month, because uh Well that's full not, disclosure. He's not your guy usually. Okay, full disclosure. I'm ready. <clears throat> Actually, I do like him. But okay. uh All right. full disclosure. I just yeah. didn't like full frontal. Um, well, I, of course. Uh, understandable. Sure. This is uh this is a first for small beans. We uh Ooh. So, so someone approached us. We'll call him Tom D, because that's his name. Um, and, uh, he approached us, and he wanted to do a frame rate. And I don't know if you're familiar with our Patreon, but if you am, pay us actually. enough, you can get Michael and I to talk about on our frame rate podcast any movie that you're like, I want you to cover this movie. And we do that. We usually only do one a month uh, or so, because you know, like we want to choose some frame rates on right, ourselves. Right. But- he approached us and he was like trying to get the frame rate. And then what happened is someone else jumped ahead of him in line and got it. Uh, I don't jump ahead of line. It's not like anyone knew. They were just like probably literally 15 minutes before mm. he uh, got it. And I, I felt luck. that. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Tom was like, well, you know what I want? Uh, I still want you to cover the movie Solaris 2002 with George Clooney directed by Steven Soderbergh. Fascinating. Uh, because he, I really like the uh, story behind it, the book especially. Oh, and I was like, dude, that guy. movie, okay. that movie fucking rips. And I love the Tarkovsky version yep. and all that stuff yep. uh, that I was like, let's do it. And he wanted to hear your thoughts on it as well, Adam. So for the oh. first time ever, Director Peace Theater is doing a pick the flick. Oh, uh, that's cool. Shout out to Tom D. Uh, he chose this movie, but it was definitely under my, like, I really wanted to cover this as well. So I think it's a great choice. Yeah, I didn't even know that. Uh, I am I'm updating you all. (laughs) That's cool. Uh, So that's what this is. Thank you, Tom D. Yeah, thanks, Tom D. I'm always down to do the pick the flick stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that they don't usually vote on my time, but if somebody is really passionate to hear my me my thoughts me thoughts on a film, just I'm throwing that out there. Just I guess I guess for you. <laughs> I guess well, for I mean, you. That's I guess what so this is. That. He yeah, wanted this conversation. Yeah, I, and so. I appreciate uh, that he wants that. Hopefully we Hope satisfy he... him. Hopefully he yeah. is satisfied. Um, <laughs> anyway. And that's the episode, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, funny enough, like I've, uh, yeah, I've watched this movie. I've actually owned this movie three different times. Uh, like, okay. Like I bought the DVD of it right when it came out and, you know, mm-hmm. when you could. And uh, then I like loaned it to a friend who I was like, dude, you got to see like you're a sci fi fan. You're going to love this. And then I never got it back. Uh, And just, you know, that's happened a few times. It's sort of like the sublime CD of movies for me. Cause that's another thing I kept. I you kept just buying kept, that sublime. You gotta CD. check out this band Sublime, yeah. dude. 
No, in like '98, when the, when the lead singer died, and they had that self-release or that self-titled record, mm-hmm. like that record got was everywhere and got stolen. I don't know how many times because I was living in the in the OC when that came out. So that's where that was its. I had that record. Yeah. yeah, that was its nexus where everybody wanted it so bad, and it was mm-hmm. being stolen. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, Solaris, the follow-up to Traffic, it, it really gets you going. Well, actually, so wait, so this is after Ocean's Eleven, right? So he made Ocean's Eleven after Traffic, and then he made this uh, movie. 2001 and God, 2002, yeah. what a run. Soderbergh is amazing. Yeah. Uh, uh, just like, I don't, you can't pin this on me. I'm not anything. I'm everything. Baby. Yeah, he's very, he, he definitely defies categorization. He's kind of a Sidney Lament type. Yeah, a little bit. You know? Even more so, because yeah. he's made like contagion and shit like right. he's all over the place right what sydney lumet's contagion i don't know what that well he's is. i mean he did the he did fail safe and uh and then mm-hmm. and he's done stuff like uh, he did 12 angry men that's which is pretty different and then he did uh before the devil knows you're dead but that movie's crazy he's like done what i would call legitimate blockbusters absolutely um, absolutely so. yeah you're right there was this, no there's no sydney lumet there's no you sydney lumet godzilla you know, Adam, exist. and we also haven't introduced ourselves. Oh, you know, sorry. Adam, as my as Abe, uh, <laughs> see, did as the it. Abe of this podcast, I would like to know. You, uh, you, you just said in like kind of off the cuff that you were like sci-fi. Yeah, I always have thought that you're not a big sci-fi guy. Um, I I think I'm a less sci-fi guy than our friends who are super sci-fi guys. That's fair. Like I we have would some say, super sci-fi friends. Yeah, like I really like Alex Garland. He's the he's the kind and amount of sci-fi mm-hmm. I get excited by. Mm-hmm. Um, same here. Yeah. I think this is you know, and but actually, this movie was recommended to me by a person who's a hard sci-fi guy. Um, so I, I guess I'm a person who's been led to sci-fi by people who are more passionate about it. Like that's my stance on it in general. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's fair. Yeah, I like that because um, I think that that's in. I mean, in the same vein of like when you think about hard sci-fi and like Star Trek and stuff like that, it's right. not about the warp engines. It's about the you know complex political kind of topics that they it's, discuss. The it's like a thought experiment. Kind of... Yeah, Star exactly. Trek's like a thought experiment so, every episode. Yeah, you definitely get yeah. that, and I think that our Alex Garland is another uh, good reference. Like yeah. people who understand that about sci-fi, it usually makes it better. I think this is definitely one of them. At least the main story is such a simplistic cool designed premise that it's just like endlessly fruitful for discussion and i think that that's what we're going to do today is going to be a little bit more of conversational i do want to point out up top what exactly makes how soderbergh approached this and what makes it a unique vision but then i really want the second half of this just to be me and you just discussing the uh, the the overall kind of thematic and yeah, the meaning um, philosophical uh, repercussions of a story like this and yeah. the decisions we make yeah yeah um and so hopefully Tom you enjoy that um but uh, let's start because there's a lot to cover I think and I want to get through some of this quickly and first off sure we should discuss just so everyone knows if you haven't seen or what that story is <clears throat> this is Solaris it's Tarkovsky was a guy who made in 1972 a film of the same name. Very famous, like kind of our tour director from Russia. There was a made-for-TV movie like four years before that, but it's also mainly a book from the early '60s. 
but they all deal with a planet called Solaris that our main character travels to. And he goes, he's usually, I think he almost, I think he's a hundred percent a psychologist that is arriving at a research station set up nearby Solaris in orbit. And he's kind of assessing a crew because there's, the crew is kind of trying to attempt to understand an extraterrestrial intelligence there, which actually takes the form of a vast ocean. So that's first off, that's cool concept in sci-fi. But after earth loses contact with all the previous teams, it appears that the danger is psychological in nature. So that's why they call this guy in. Uh, And the protagonist arrives and finds out fairly quickly that the planet is reading the crew's dreams and just manifesting a person out of thin air. This person always seems to have a deep connection to the crew member, either a loved one, a ch- one of their children, even themselves. Uh, the clones have memories of their life and communicate with the members of the crew when they appear. Though, as we find out through the story, they start to realize that there are holes because it's like a virtual version of someone's memory of them. So they're not fully realized as f- people. They are, however, immortal, which causes some problems because they resurrect even if they like drink liquid uh, oxygen. Um, in the Soderbergh version, yeah, Doctor Kelvin, who's played by George Clooney, starts starts off just by throwing his dead wife out of an airlock because Rhea, his ex, his ex wife who committed suicide, uh, is now there, and he's like, "Fuck this," <laughs> which is kind of. That's that's kind of real. I'm not gonna I, lie. That's I loved like it. I love o- that big offer in Act One. Yeah, and it, like yeah, just Act One. Uh, just like yep, yeah, nope, gone. Uh, but yeah. yeah, the backstory here that's relative for you to understand are kind of our discussions is that Rhea, after she terminated a pregnancy years ago, which we find in like Act Two, all this information out, killed herself. And then one night when Kelvin Clooney found out, he walked out on her. And she was left alone. And that's when she committed suicide. He came back and found her. And he's been living largely in grief his whole life since. Uh, It's been 10 years, right? It's been like 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So largely the film's act two examines Kelvin's gradual openness to this like Rhea clone, her existence. And simultaneously, uh, it also looks at the other crew members of Solaris. There's like two other ones. Um, who Snow and Gordon in this case, who debate the methods and morality of just leaving Solaris because they're worried they'll bring bring it back to us, um, and it will cause some cascade effect with Earth. Um, they invent uh, invent at one point a device that bombards the clone with a form of energy, basically vaporizing them. But as Kelvin ponders bringing Rhea back to Earth, Gordon becomes his main opposition. She, who's played by Viola Davis, thinks great. that's she's great. very good. Yeah, because she's absolutely a scientist. She's like, I'm not yeah. going to bring the shit back to Earth. What the fuck are you thinking? You're getting too close to this. She's, which I love. She's emotional but rational about her emotions. She's like, uh, yeah. Don't you understand what's at stake? Yeah, right. And and um, and don't you understand? Don't you understand what you don't know? I mean, and those are good exactly. questions. You know, um, yeah, right. So she's there and she has that viewpoint. Uh, and in the end, a kind of guilt ridden and like she's guilty because she feels she's got literal imposter syndrome. Uh, she feels inauthentic. She, Rhea kills herself using Gordon's help with the device. Uh, there's also a subplot where Snow, uh, where he actually it was the whole time is the clone. Uh, and he killed the OG Snow because OG Snow saw himself. And as you would assume, probably freaked out. 
and they just fought and ultimately the clone won. So he's been kind of moonlighting as the OG Snow uh, because what else are you going to do? He's just literally popped into existence as he describes. He's like, I knew nothing. The first thing I literally knew is myself coming at me with a knife. It is. Which is kind of a cool. It is cool. It's interesting that the purpose of that being continues whether you're the person you're visiting exists or not. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that, like a download. It's not like a persistent. That that bet that calls into question whether the intelligence of Solaris is actually doing this to interact with the people or not. We'll get into Yeah, that. I know we will. I'm just pointing Let's, that out now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good in- indication of the story really wanting us to think about that, which it does. Yeah, it definitely does. I would argue. Yeah. Um so Kelvin and Gordon get into the ship after they kind of just say, Snow, you, you stick around. There's a little, you know, logic as to why they need to leave and leave now, but that's not really important to the any of the stories. Um, it's not to the philosophical. You kind of got the gist. Point is they get to, uh, they go on a ship to get home, but Kelvin feels the presence of Rhea again while she's now on the planet, apparently, so she didn't die. And he decides mm. to stay whether he dies or not. And we're kind of revealed by that of, we see him go back home and then he cuts his finger and then the finger heals, which is a property of the clones. They can have healing properties. So then he knows, Oh, I'm not on our earth. I'm on Solaris. And then she reveals herself says, yep, you're right. You are in Solaris. We don't have to think Uh, about that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Kelvin. So basically Clooney decides whether, Oh, I'm I'm just going to die. I'm going to stay. Uh, and they spend eternity on Solaris as echoes of memories, I guess. Um, yeah, it's not clear what their existence is at the at the end of the day, right? N- nor is it important. All I yeah, have to maybe know it is isn't. that there's this yeah. there's this god there's this god alien that can do things whether they want to or not, which is probably going to be the topic of our conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing that's um, why that's why I was asked to be here. <laughs> I'm yeah, sure that's I what think it is. it's going to be interesting. Yeah, so yeah, in yeah. that, uh, in that, uh, I, I do want to say how Soderbergh, and I'm sure this is just nice because we're going to be on common ground probably. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about what Soderbergh did that's really effective in making you understand, like how do you cover a movie that your protagonist is like kind of, Memories are so key to the story. Memories are so from where everything spawns, yet they're unreliable in the case of like Rhea. She's having memories that are his, so she's not a full person. And then on the other instance, you have Clooney, who's like, I'm not sure exactly what I remember and is what I remember the true version of that person. There's a lot going on. And one of the cool aspects, if not the coolest aspects aspect of this movie is how we start on earth, how we show Clooney in his like state of being before we get to Slars. Yeah. Movie opens, he's getting out of bed. He's walking on the street to go to work, making food, taking a train. Everything is transitional. In other words, he's filming liminal spaces Mm. and the editing is very abrupt. It's very stark and it's indicative of a kind of ongoing process, which is of course how like, what we think of when we think of a montage, that's just the items of a montage. So it feels like a montage. The whole movie, in a way, does. Yep. There's no music. It's it's, uh, it's not like a classic montage. And this is just something I wanted to point out. Like Rocky running up the steps, getting stronger. You know, like <laughs> that shit. That's what you think when I say word montage, right? Yes. Rocky is the best at montages. Absolutely. 
Yeah. When we think of the word montage, we you, you know we think of that Rocky thing. Yeah. Like what montage really is, uh, when you look back at like the history of the word, oh, like, and how it was used in movies, is colloquially, it's just a sequence in a movie that cuts in a way that advances time quickly. It's a series of images that we're supposed to believe, like doesn't play in real time, and it's uh. It could even be in the mind of the character. We've seen montages that are, you know, dream sequences and stuff like that. But that's what we think of when we think montage. Usually it's set to music or has like some kind of consistent, like a narration or something. Yeah, that kind of lubricates it so that it feels more natural. Yeah, but the origin of the word and why that is becoming the kind of colloquial understanding of the word is because uh, the origin of the word really means only the itemized thing that makes up that sequence. It means context between cuts. That's what word montage really actually means, at least historically. Okay. And what I mean by that is like if I show you a man with sad eyes and then cut to, let's say, a warm home-cooked meal, you might infer that he's hungry, right? Yeah. Or if I took the same shot of that same sad man and cut to his lover, then you think that there may, and and the lover's sad. Maybe you think that their uh, relationship is in trouble. It's the basic, basically it's the like in between the cut that is the suspension of our disbelief that makes for a combined image that helps you, the viewer, understand what the movie's going for. Okay. That's what, and this was all, like, this is Eisenstein. This is the, like, Yeah, this is the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very beginning, he literally made a movie that was just like, I'm going to take a shot of a man looking blankly at camera and then just cut in stuff and, like, ask people. What did you think that was about? And it's because he was trying to understand what what is like early days in cinema. What what is the suspension of disbelief? What is it the same for everybody? Does everyone watch a movie and like is able to connect the tissue? Turns out yes, and that's why we have movies. Um, but yeah, montage is that's like kind of the origin of where we started with montage, and now we kind of have just kind of not in a bad way. We've called called it. It's still in the spirit of the word. But when you think of, you know, Rocky up running up the steps or whatnot. Yeah. That's a different kind of montage. <laughs> there's a way we do it. Uh there's a way it's yeah. normally done. I, yeah, which so anyway is the grammar of it. Yeah. The reason I even mention that is that like the mo- it, it does feel like a classic, like or it does feel like a colloquial montage, these sequences. But I think that there's something going on here with like the conversation. What's his purpose in being there? don't you love me anymore? Yeah, right. These are questions that aren't really montage questions. These are scene work questions. So he's blending the line of what's a scene, what's reality, what's temporally consistent, and with what's memory. And that's pretty cool. Um, Yeah, that's right. If you really wanted to, you could say none of this happened. You know, like yeah. or or all of it, all of it is remembered later after his decision to stay on the station, right? And that's yeah. and that's really what Soderbergh. That's his involvement. If you go back and watch the Tarkovsky version, the liminal spaces stuff is not in there. It's more about mm. him and his father and stuff, and about the uh, character uh, novella that's occurring. So it plays more in real time, <clears throat> like meaning meaning yeah. it it never. It never asks the question it, whether what you're watching is happening or not? No, it does. Okay. It's just, it's not about the first image and the first sequence. Like, it's not like how okay. the movie jumps. Jump. And I think, uh, personally, and I think you probably share this opinion, first images or first sequences in movies are super important in oh, a yeah. theme, right? That's a film school basic. Um, Absolutely. Right. 
And in this movie, he listens, he's in group therapy, he's a psychologist, clinical psychologist, and he listens to two points of view. And we hear two different points of view being espoused. And this is- That's mm. right. Soderbergh's fucking nailing it here. First person we hear is a man who's bothered that any small random thing, like a news story or a t-shirt hanging in a window, puts his wife into a laconic state. And then her laconic, because it reminds her of something, a, a previous trauma. And then he is like, then her being in that way causes me to be in a laconic state. So like, I'm basically like, I, I think it's like, it seems like a dead kid is what Yeah, it, there's like, a trauma. He doesn't say right. it, but it's some kind of thing like right. that. And then a woman argues that she says, seeing reminders in the real world don't make me feel anything. They feel hollow. They feel like they're not connected to me. And that scares me. And so we have two different point of views, two contrasts of one basic principle. The concept of being overwhelmed by perception, whether by not having enough uh, emotional connection to it or having too much. Uh, someone overwhelmed by a disconnect between her reality and emotion and someone just overwhelmed by any looking at anything, by perception itself. That's really the heart of this film. And it, and it really asks the question that we're going to kind of talk about later is what's the result of perception's stranglehold on our reality? Oh, and we're a, going all the way yeah. to that, huh? We'll get there. All right. This is kind of echoed later in the movie by a statement made by uh, Dr. Gibarian, yeah. which is, we don't want other worlds. We want mirrors. That's right. More on that later. There's another line in uh, there either. It's like, there's no, uh, there's no answers, only choices. Mm-hmm. There's another, mm-hmm. that line I paid attention to this time. Yeah, keep going. Uh, one last thing. It's just kind of more on the montage bit. Uh, I did want to... He's doing more than meets the eye there, too. I wanted to mention it earlier just because it's like... It, if there is a limited... If there is a liminal space in, in film, it is the space in between the cuts. You know what I right. mean? Like the thing Absolutely. that we're filling in the detail. But anyway, um, to really address it, when you look at people like Chris Nolan, Alex Garland, Greta Gerwig Mm -hmm. and Soderbergh to some extent he paved kind of the way if you look uh his early films they predated any of those other three names I mentioned they all use short quick edits between scenes like abrupt square cuts uh and there's this tendency that we don't last in a scene very long um and in fact most of this scene or most of this film is a flashback uh when you look at it in terms right. of like the scene by scene by scene, right? Definitely, Act Two is almost entirely flashback with comments, and we pop back. It's this idea that it's like, okay, there's a long scene in montage, then we just cut it up by popping back to a shot of them actually on the ship, and he just asking a question, and then we're back in the montage. It's this idea that we're traveling between the two. Um, films where protagonists kind of go through mental strain. Either they have like affecting dreams or reality is questioned. I find that these films often play with this relationship and Soderbergh is no real different. Later in the film when Clooney kind of puts, starts to get a handle on his dreams and reality and they like, they, they're becoming mixed and he's also taking pills. I don't know what for, it could be for radiation, but I'm not sure. The pills are uh, a little unclear. Yeah. A little unclear, but we, that he's taking pills, which right. is kind of, to me, just a kind of dog whistle for, you know, like, oh, something is not, his reality isn't exactly clear. Just briefly, because this, this will matter later. 
the blue pill mm-hmm. seems to be an antidepressant of some kind, and the red one seems right. to make them make him stay awake. Yeah, yeah. And during these segments, Rhea uh, will appear in different places in what appears to be diegetic reality. And what I mean by that is she'll be standing. And then he'll answer her question, and then he'll cut to her sitting, and it's like no time has passed. It's like they both happened, or none of them happened, right? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So it's memories take over of reality. Once again, the liminal taking over our homeworld. Yeah, he does cuts in this that you'd never see in movies, like even today. Mm -hmm. Like he'll do a cut where like he'll cut from like a close up of a face to like a slightly off the eye line looking above them, yeah. like medium close of the same face. It's like haunting in it, a way. It's like haunting and they don't, it's like that would be a horrible cut in any other movie. But in this movie, mm-hmm. it has meaning because again, he's really, he is making us operate in that in between the cut space. That's a great and, point. And proof is in the execution. Like you're saying with the eye lines, he does that with uh, asynchronous sound yeah. to illustrate memories. Yeah. Uh, like for example, this means overlapping audio that doesn't belong to the video. Where like when you have synced sound, it's I open my mouth on video and it, it it's uh, all the words look exactly right. It looks like no a normal person. He d- he refuses to do that. He'll do non diegetic sound sometimes, overlapping audio that just doesn't belong in this in this space, uh, which is a thing that happens in montage over and over in other films. So it's not a big deal on its own, but. When it's taken from another speech at a different time in a different place, playing over the scene, it's different from basic voiceover. Right. Like, for example, the thought, the one that I just thought of was basically just like someone commenting on something else that's happening. Like in Game of Thrones, this is used a lot. There's a speech that Littlefinger gives at one point that's pretty popular, famous. That's like chaos is a ladder, and then yeah. the video of it is ping ponging around the world to show how these things are coming to a head. And yeah, it is chaos. Right. Uh, that's fairly popular, especially recently. Uh, especially films of the directors that I mentioned. TV has really, you know, done this a lot more recently than uh, you know other things that it could have picked up from its uh, history of uh, the history of cinema or TV. Um, but in Solaris's case, we're supposed to believe that Rhea is having a disconnect between her memory of events, those that are unseen, and seen events as remembered by Clooney. So it's this kind of joint memory that happens, or not joint memory in that they're coming to a compromise, but joint is in they're kind of filling e- each other they're filling in details and the movie itself is kind of us watching like, okay, filled in, she said that, but that was like OG her was OG her, but Clooney's memory of her, and now this is her actually responding to that memory. It's it's so it's like a game of telephone, right? I mean, yes. Except for I have to say one thing that makes Soderbergh so great is that he does do little touches to keep us grounded enough to follow it narratively. Like for instance, yeah, we were talking about this before this we started recording. He has like a little filter that he puts in front of the camera for planet Earth and like a color scheme, like a warmer color scheme. But the filter Mm. makes it so that there's it's like it's slightly tinted at the top, like third Mm. of the frame. Um, If you look for it, you'll never unsee it. So sorry for those of you who are going to watch this and never unsee it. It also kind of has a vignette. Yeah, it's a vignetting effect. Right. And but it does this thing where it sort of unconsciously, you know where you are. Like, you know, you're on Earth, right? Like, he does like these little yeah. things to distinguish yeah. where and when we are. 
that help us right. know like uh like there's a montage like this when George Clooney is sleeping that explains both the emotional cause of and the fact of Rhea's arrival as a visitor uh where we get the backstory of them meeting and then we get the sort of confusion of her being there and him being confused about it and then we actually mm-hmm. get him waking up and we know that both things we're setting us up for the real thing that's happening, which is now she's actually here. Right. Um, yeah. Soderbergh's very good at grammatically keeping us grounded so that he can do this shit. Um, and it, it's hard to agree. do this. Yeah. It's very hard to do this. I would the, say. Um, I love the subliminal kind of suggestion of the filter and earth. I didn't even think of that. And that's totally in thematic. Tone. I think that's the only reason it's there. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like no, themes it's... and for clarity. Like otherwise, it's not really a very meaningful choice. Then, like, much. what is this? Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So basically, all of this is an effort to really give you the sense out of these sequences that you're unsure of who is truly narrating the movie, Rhea the okay. clone or Rhea the memory. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think. Okay. And I think that that's, uh, I mean, if you look at the Tarkovsky, if you read the, uh, I haven't read it, but I have I did some critical reading and I read a pretty detailed synopsis of the uh, Stanislaus Lem, who's the writer. Who wants the philosophy uh, more than the emotions. And all of them are, they want us to ask this question. So uh, let's mm-hmm. go back to the top where I said mm-hmm. the thing that we're going to talk about later, the very important thing, mm-hmm. what's perception versus re- reality. Right. That's what. I want to ask you a question. Let's start our conversation. Okay. If you knew, for example, that the world was like a copy, right? Like a perfect copy. Like there was a world that's real and this isn't it. And I'm not saying this version. Yeah. But like the Matrix. (laughs) Okay. Do you think it ever would be real enough if you knew? Like once I know this isn't real, can anything undo that, that parlor trick? Yeah. Uh, No. I don't think so. Like in, in in the sense that to make me accept uh to make me accept and be completely driven by the things that go on in this reality, I don't I know, I don't think so. So you know? it would at least it would at least kind of deconstruct and destroy the realness of it for you. Um it would undermine the meaning of its realness, even if it didn't deconstruct its realness, right? So, like, what I mean by that is, so, like, in The Matrix, imagine a world where you woke up and saw the towers, right? And right. knew definitively that what you saw was real, and then you went back to sleep and were never able to see the towers again, right? Mm. But you knew that that happened, and you can't get to the surface of what it means. Would you still be obsessed with getting ahead as a banker? You know what I mean? Right. Would you still yeah. be, would you still well, like desperately seek your partner, you know, like finding a partner in I this mean, reality? That's, that's an, that, that is a good answer. Uh, I, Ooh, now I just want to ask this question. Go for it. Sure. Because what do you think about living with doubt though? I mean, we all like have if to. You're, yeah. Yeah. But specifically on this topic, for example, I know something that you might, uh, you might have an interesting answer or a different answer than okay. me is like, is powerlessness to something comforting ever, ever for example. Yeah. Like let's say God okay. is powerless to God comforting would not knowing what God, 
Well, yeah, let's just if God is inscrutable, right? Like, so if if I assume that God is inscrutable, uh, then then no, it'd be terrifying, right? Okay, so if wait, so it's terrifying if God is inscrutable, inscrutable, if you don't understand, which is the premise of this movie. So not knowing what God wants changes things for you. If God is a is a an ocean of consciousness whose motives are are entirely alien. The way it's not God. This it has nothing to do with God. Yeah. Well, uh, no, you could, that could be God. That could be what God was. I mean, I don't think that's the rational explanation for what God would be. Mm. Uh, but let's suppose a world where that is true. Uh, then no, knowing that you're powerless to that being would not uh, would not be a good feeling. Like you would not feel comforted by it. You wouldn't feel comforted because you'd have that doubt. What not if doubt. That, you would have certainty. You would have certainty that you couldn't know, and like so, you wouldn't doubt that. You know right. what I mean? Like that's the thing is, it wouldn't be a doubtful experience because doubt means there's a possibility that it could go more one of several ways. I guess doubt that it's got your back. Oh, you but you would from... you would know that it doesn't have your back. Like if I not if I I think you do if you're if you're George Clooney for instance in this movie right uh-huh. uh. The, what they this, he does what every human being would do when in the face of a god he doesn't understand he tries to reason out what is the god like based on what it's doing right, right? and the logic he comes to is it could have killed us if it wanted to right and it, so it didn't that is want a to. compelling argument it is a compelling yeah, I, I agree not knowing what it wants gives this feeling of uh well then what then what does it want is the question. Well, and I think to the front, right? that's what Viola Davis's character is obsessed with. It's trying to figure right. out what it, what is it really? I think, like in some sense, she's the true religious person. Like what? That's interesting. What I w- George Clooney is not a religious person. George Clooney is using yeah. the god for his own pleasure. You know, uh, like a like it's a genie. But the second it betrays him, he would not. He would his belief in that God would be shattered. That's just like human experience. I think they're all faith. They all have faith in something. Absolutely. And I think that the person who's truly, uh, who truly examines it, uh, distant from kind of their own perception, or the closest we get, I wouldn't say is flawed or flawless, is uh, Doctor Gabarian. Because he asks those questions that you referenced the quote to, which is a, a series of three lines. Why do you think Solaris wants something? He asks. Why does it have to want something? Right. And then the response is, if you or he keeps saying, if you keep thinking there's a solution, you'll die here. Right. There are no answers, right. only choices. But I would I would argue that that appearance is actually uh, the, in the same way. That everything is a manifestation of a person's consciousness in this movie. That is a manifestation of George Clooney's beliefs that he's held his whole life, right? Because remember, they have that yes, whole. I think they're all scientists. Yeah, he's a scientist, but he's also kind of a smug dick. You know what I mean? Yeah, like he's sort of yeah. both things, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean like. There's a really great scene where he talks his the dinner party. Yeah, he talks his wife into coming to this dinner party. And it's very clear she has these beliefs in God. Like she believes in God. Mm-hmm. And he thinks they're very stupid. Uh, you know, like they're stupid and they're and they're obviously not informed. And, you know, he's he's extreme he's pretty condescending about it. Him and, by the way, the guy who appears to him later. They're both there. 
And Mm -hmm. she, at a certain point, no longer hears him because she's realizing she's only seeing it from his point of view, which is what the point of that scene is. But she, but also I think there's a reason why Soderbergh cuts the sound out there because Mm -hmm. it helps us. There's memory error. It's it's partly that it's partly that you're absolutely right. But it's also to take the stock of who he is at that moment, not what he's saying, who he is. Right. It's a, uh, it's accosting. It's an effective silence while looking it's at someone's observing face, him. knowing that they're yes. angry or that they have a lot going on in their brain right. is a very compelling. Image. Absolutely. And like, again, contrast this, like there's a reason why that guy shows up there because it allows him to not address the morality of what, uh, the morality of what he's doing, right? Like that's that belief system reinforces for him. Like I don't have to think about what I'm doing. I'm allowed to chase this feeling I have because uh, there is no answer. There's only choices. A thing he, a thing that literally everything in front of him is telling not is not true. Right? Like everything right. in front of him tells him it's not true. You know, this place is riddled with answers, whether he like he may not have the ability to perceive them, but they're there. Like he has proof they're there every day. Right. Yeah. Whether they're accessible is the question, right? Yes. Well, so and here's the kick. Here's the kicker part. Right. So there's obviously a port of the last meaningful image of him on the spaceship is uh, assisting chapel recreation. Um, mm-hmm. where he is being reached out to by this child who's been running around the ship without a seeming, like seemingly without a cause. And it's very clearly like a manifestation of the planet's consciousness, I would say. Um, like, like the child is the planet. Like the child is God. Like reach, like, you know, exploring this place uh, and just sort of running rampant. That was my interpretation. That, that was not? I could see okay. I, symbolically. I'm ready. I, I literally thought it was Gabarian's or however you say his name, Dr. Gabarian's. His kid that uh, died. His kid who's just now lingering, showing that memories persist, which is the That's whole. That's interesting. There's a whole point. Does it say uh, that it... He, that's what I think is the Soderbergh version. What you're pitching is actually the Tarkovsky version. Mm, it feels like to that. To me, or that's the under... They're both... It's. I think that's fine. I think that Tarkovsky is a lot more spiritual than Soderbergh. I think um, Soderbergh... And he shows it as in more of a sympathetic light, the faith aspect of this. But Soderbergh definitely does present it. I mean, he says that like memories and love breathe life into things and more concretely the artificialities of memory are no less real than what is real which is consistent with what i think he might be saying that espoused in- i i i i think he I is i think he's kind of i think he's sort of choosing to defer a little bit on that question i don't think he's making a really yeah. strong statement about it well but he's clearly i guess maybe invoking the god imagery with this child <clears throat> uh, yeah clearly. and it's also exact exactly the thing that you and i are having a little bit of a problem with our, uh, not in a bad way, but like, just like we are not, uh, my perception and your perception is a little different. I actually think Soderbergh is more like me. You think he's more. No, like no, you, I don't. I don't think great. he's like me at all. Actually. Oh, okay, I, th- I think he, okay. cause I was going to say, believes things that you that's, do too. he puts it, he puts it, he puts it like a scientist. He, he's like preaching the debate somewhat like he's, um, he's like, if, if you had a Solaris-like deal, it's preferable to grief sometimes. 
which is yeah. kind of not how anyone would want faith to be described back at them. Uh, you know, like it's a it's a uh, a pill, a form of you know opiate that calms. He, he the definitely is saying That's that. Not very flattering. He's definitely saying He's, that. I think he is. Yeah, like there's a reason why uh, Rhea is dressed in the same color as the blue pill at the end. Uh, right. Yeah, like because yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a sedative, cool. you know. Like uh, it, yeah. it's it's he is saying that uh, that this sort of eternity of religion is a ter- is an eternity of uh echoes you mm-hmm. know um and an, it, sort of a, an eternity of one feeling and one perception and uh i think that's how anybody who doesn't believe in religion would view it i think that makes a lot of sense you know uh mm-hmm. but i think he's also actually stumbling onto some things that are more meaningful and sort of he's kind of saying the opposite at the same time uh, I think you have to have sympathy for the other s- part of the equation because it's the, there's a balance that's happening. Totally. If you don't know something, totally. if you do have that question, that means there's two competing claims that have equal value at you to you at that point. And I think it's a fair assumption, uh, assumption that the whole movie, especially Act 2, is the reversal of George Clooney's previous assumptions to the assumption of something larger to the idea of solaris being a viable way to live life he opens up to it gradually i think so and i i think that's the meaning of this child you know the god of the sistine chapel actually connecting to his hand you know because he's still kind of ambivalent and afraid of it in that, in the way they shoot it i mean and again it's very clear the sistine chapel that's not that's not an accident i think I think that for us, uh, for more of a layman, for someone who's not of faith, the Sistine Chapel becomes less of a transmutation of God's will into man and more of a parable for creation, so, the birth of something, the touch, the spark. So I feel mm. that, I, like, as in my, you know, heathen ways, I'm arguing that, like, I think Soderbergh is trying to say that the whole setup of that framing, the whole like uh, uh, allegory that he's doing there, which you're absolutely right, is mimicking that stuff, is more of a statement of uh, memory and perception begets memory and perception begets memory and perception. Here's the birth process of Solaris. Um, I think that which is different than to say that's how ideas the occur. Birth, or, the birth you know, process of Solaris. I'm just thinking the, about the words here. It's, yeah, I, it's how it uh, how it perpetuates itself. Okay, well, if it helps, it's if it's helpful for the sake of uh, conversation. I think actually those things might be actually they they might be somewhat synonymous. I um, think so. I think it's all how you prefer to kind of well, analyze so, it, but they're both saying the so same. So Christian eternity, right? Which is this is drawing heavily on that. Uh, Christ, Christian mm. eternity, if you if you study it, is clearly. Uh, a recreation like that like it's not it's not you know people with harps in the clouds it's uh it's a new heaven and a new earth meaning a recreation uh like and there's a physicality there's a there's a restoration of what was into a better version of the new right and i think in that sense that this eternity that's being promised or being activated if you will uh by him staying on the ship is uh a thin version of that 
right? It's sort of a, it's like it, like the movie itself. It's sort of an echo of that idea, right. uh, just like his memories are sort of echoes okay. of what really happened. Um, yeah. But he, as you said, he's not really a f- on the side of. And then everything was great, and the man lived in eternity in paradise forever. I think it's very much a. Right. I think the ending is very much a bittersweet. Yeah, bittersweet. Is this him? good? I don't know. You know, is this better? I don't know, but it's. Yeah. I decided to stay. There's only choices, right? There's only um, choices, right? This is the way that an existentialist would view very this much so. eternity, and I and that's what's so great about it. There is a kind of romance to it, even if it's hollow. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you know, because something that I think really signi- signifies the truth of like what makes the story so compelling, whether it be Soderbergh, Tarkovsky, or Lem. Um, you can't deny the premise that perception at least feeds our reality no. if it's not entirely. And we have all seen time and time again, oh, even from the smallest moment of like, I thought something else was happening in this room and it's not. You guys are all, everyone's happy. And I feel like now I'm the crazy person. We've had those sure. moments too looking across the landscape of American politics right now and going like, can you believe it? Roe v. Wade? You know, yeah, like there's God, so yeah. many indications of like reality. This is not reality that we are very, I think humans in general, and it's a truth across the board are very tuned to the concept of what I thought was true. Yeah. I thought it'd be one way. It, it's another way, you yeah. know, like it's, it's, it's just like, you want it to be one and, way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, what's interesting to me is that like, so really that makes it nullifies your choices into any kind of meaning criterion that will answer it correctly. There's no correct. There's only, there's no right. There's only choices that you make that you feel are the best thing for you or for the people that you well, love. Obviously, and, uh, obviously I can't accept all of the, all of that as true. Uh, and right. uh, and I think is it's not even the best explanation for the way reality works. But sure. I will say that it is a natural conclusion from experience. You I would know? say that it unifies humans, uh, at least uh, in some kind of uh, we all share it. You know, so yeah, this is shared. That. There's a well. That's what's so interesting is when you talk about we all share it, and yet the uh, and yet the basis for all for all uh existentialist abstraction is the impo- the impermutability of of knowledge from mm. one consciousness to another yeah like how 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 inscrutable my mind is from yours no matter how there yeah. is no possibility of true understanding or meaning between us asymmetrical kind of insight yeah well that's the problem um, right it's like but that kind of an idea is so uh so rife with uh it, it kills all hunger it, kill, it it doesn't satisfy on a base level why human beings communicate like you know and that idea it, it, yeah it's self-defeating if although our, the argument is that we might be animals or we might be beings that uh even if we know something is not even if we doubt something very very much so even if we don't have a certainty of it but we doubt it very much so that we will actually succeed in doing stuff we still do it uh i i think that uh the human need to be understood and to un and to rationalize the universe is so powerful 
that even viewpoints like the one that you were describing Soderbergh as having, and I don't know the man, so I can't say for sure. I don't even know, but, but it's just, I'm looking at the way at we're the describing film. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way we're describing it, even that viewpoint must, though it consumes its own tale, must find its own uh, satisfaction because we we need it too bad to let it lie. We just, we need it too bad. Well, if you look at the story and as I said before, so in the comments, you know, rag on me, I did do like some reading on yeah. it. I'm not just like cliff notes in it, but Lem's argument is even less um, spiritual, I guess is a word that could be used. Grief is, he, he kind of leaves us with grief is permanent. There's no solution. Even if we want one, nothing is going to go well. Uh, you're not going to get any answers as to why, if that, if you're even right at the end of the tunnel. Um, and that's even darker than what I think Soderbergh is kind of positing. A life is a life, even if that life is a clone, even if that life feels like it's an incomplete version of a previous life, it is still something to live. Uh, I think is that's that what, what Soderbergh does have. A, I, I don't know. I think Soderbergh does have that little hopefulness there. Oh, I agree. It's bittersweet hopefulness. I totally agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Tarkovsky is more of like, sometimes God literally shows you the thing that you don't want to be true. That is true. I, I will give you the thing you need. That's more like Tarkovsky also has questions about the artificialities of like the reality. But he ultimately kind of comes down to the spiritual kind of like it, it deals with the love of his father. He chooses his father over the uh, Rhea character. Um and it kind of pans out for him. He is happy as we leave Solaris. Mm. Uh, Lem is not a big fan of that. And Soderbergh is kind of the middle. That's just my rundown of my different interpretations of the I versions. I think that the um, Soderbergh version and sort of encapsulating the dilemma in the a lover that a lover that left too soon is a pr- uh, a, a more. I think it speaks to modern audiences a little more than Tarkovsky's version would uh, for, for a well, few reasons. Yeah. Uh, the biggest one being that I think our search for meaning is, it can often feel like, or even be like an experience of loving a woman like Rhea, like, like he had, right. Where there is, there are moments of this sort of like, my God, it really seems like this is the way it's supposed to be. And then suddenly mm. and seemingly without understanding it, uh, it crumbles. And then what are you left with? Right. Like suffering really does seem to eradicate a lot of people's beliefs in our time. Uh, yes. I would, yeah. Yeah. I would argue entirely that um, right now we have kind of an addiction in story. If you look at the movies for sure. To um, suffering. Well, the idea of having a chance to choose differently to write previous yeah. wrongs. Yeah. Yeah. Um. That's a that's a I think an that that's what's originally re- right. That's repugnant to Clooney's character at the beginning, and then at the end, he he. It's the soma, you know. It's the balm to the. I wound. think that he does yeah. grow in a way that we can describe as spiritual, even from the framework you're saying. Uh, mm-hmm. he grows to be willing to. Uh. To be willing to, yeah, accept that he made a mistake and try to fix it, but also uh, to sacrifice himself and his ideas mm-hmm. uh, for yeah. a, a, a reality in which he's happy, I guess. You know? In the same vein, I'm just going to, off the rip, would you prefer free will or fate? 
if I have to choose between them. <laughs> I don't know how anybody can say there is such a thing as free will. Uh, like mm. I don't, I don't, I don't even know what that really means. I think a sidestep for the generation. It's not a sidestep. <laughs> I, I think that everyone has the experience of conscious choice, um, and it, that experience of conscious choice is true. And uh, you made your decisions because you made them. But sort of like the way that we're doing moral calculus now by diffuse impact. Like, for instance, as a consumer, often my morals are decided by, you bought that egg? Did you know that, you know, Venezuelan cattle farmers were tortured for that egg? Mm. No, man, I didn't know that. You know what I mean? You're eating torture. Right. right that's sort of, when we talk about free will versus fate, uh, that's act- that is the actual, actual dynamic at work, right? Where it's like, okay, on the one hand is my experience, and these are the this is the realm I'm operating in. And it's control. all the things it's that actually control. determine that choice. Uh, if you want to extrapolate into the spider web of causality are like, yeah, if that's how you do it, then there is no such thing as free will. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. So there's no such thing. I don't know what that could even mean. That's free will. Like, and it wouldn't be real enough if you knew the world is. A but I also don't believe uh, like, like, you know, you know, Abe, that I'd be an existentialist if I wasn't a Christian. You know that, you know, that existentialism yeah. is very romantic for me. Um, nihilism mm-hmm. is also very romantic for me. Um, mm-hmm. so I love them. They're like mistresses that I flirt with from time to time. Um, I, I, so like, I don't know what anybody even means by free will, like on any scientific or philosophical level. I don't know what that means, right. but yeah, yeah. what does it really mean? But I believe that our understanding of what fate is, is also limited by our perception. Like that's as much an alien intelligence as, Lem's version of Solaris. So I think mm-hmm. the idea of fate or predetermination or whatever is also a kind of a meaningless dialogue. You know, like, because you don't, because... Well, it is until you, you're you a clone, baby. <laughs> and then, for example, Rhea, sure. uh, they, there's a, a clear indication in several of these works that the Rhea character uh, is remembered as self-destructive through the perception Correct. of... Kelvin Correct. Clooney, uh, sh- that new version ends up committing suicide as well, twice. Um, counter counterpoint: so, the only way we can have yeah. these discussions philosophically is by creating a thing that is a reduced version, a, a reduced version yeah. of us. Because that's like, yeah, you have. That's right, to, you though, have because to. like that's you, correct. And that's why, as right. an abstraction, it's not the most useful way to talk about reality. Oh, it's good for it's good right. as a test yeah. case, and it's good for like the question you asked, which is like, "What do you prefer?" Right. You're right. That's a, this is a good way to talk about that. But when people want to then say that's what life is like, I would say, "No, no, you reduced reality to explain it, and therefore didn't capture it." In the same way that, like, this is my objection to a serious man, a film I know you really like. Um, a serious man, I've always had the objection that the filmmakers are trying to make the case that life is cruel and purposeless, right? And that's mm-hmm. what people, a lot of people are like, that's life, man. And my argument is, no, no, that's a reduced life that a filmmaker created to illustrate a point that isn't true. And that's why it doesn't feel true. Like, you know, you're going to... Re- why, why do you, what proof do you have? What proof? I have the experience of joy and why faith do you think of millions that, that's not- that says the opposite. But like, what, what makes you say that that filmmaker didn't 
didn't believe that that is uh, that telescopes to reality. I'm I'm sure they did. Even believe if it, it is a fact, I'm sure they did believe it. But I'm saying. But you're saying I just don't buy that part. I'm saying that I think I, that like most people whose viewpoint is uh, is grim in this way it's a it's a concentration on certain aspects of life and it, completely ignoring others in order to make the case it's reductionist enough to make it seem true but it isn't that's that's true that's how that's politics baby Propaganda. absolutely that's, <laughs> that's all, all we propaganda. ever do that's all movies that's all ever we ever do yeah. we just create shadow that's plays. all we ever do it's not just yeah movies. yeah i mean yeah. so when we ask ourselves what's to me it's more to me what the interesting question is and yes you can say uh the fact that you create a facsimile to prove a, a suggestion means that you're reducing reality giving meaningfully you're giving the ammunition to one side a little and, bit yeah. yeah i understand yeah. that but when you do ask yourself would you prefer free will or fate you immediately identified, which I think rightfully so is that it's, it's kind of just about control. It's always about control. It's, it's yeah. about, yeah. And if you don't, if, so if you are powerless, even if you believe in the, even if you believe that the person who does have the power or the entity that does have the power has your back, you still, you still find yourself in a situation where you will doubt that. Of person. course. I I, you're absolutely right. Unless it's God. Unless no, it's especially God. if it's yeah, God. No, no, no. Especially if oh, it's okay. God. Okay. Because, like, I mean, to use the metaphor, no, no, my bad. This my is bad. Garden of Eden, right? This is why should why mm -hmm. did God really say you couldn't eat the fruit? You will be like God if you do. You see, like that the desire was always about wait, 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 wait. Why do you listen to this guy? You could be just like that guy if you did if you took control for yourself. That's always. Do you think been. that that's what the line "We don't want no worlds, we want mirrors" Absolutely. is about? Do you think? Of course it is, man. Okay. Like, like our I believe in the reality of sin. That's a thing I believe in, and mm -hmm. all that I would say that means is that we are we are flawed intrinsically enough that we are unable to take ourselves out of the pilot seat. We're unable to we're unable to accept a reality where we're not the main character, you know. And most of our problems stem from that, you know, stem from the need to be the main character, to need to be the the architect of reality, right? Which, by the way, our existentialism is the ultimate how to become the architect of your reality. There is no reality, therefore, mm -hmm. you alone create it. That's why it's so romantic and interesting, you know. Um, and I I think sin is a description of that, but with a moral a moral point of view that comes from an ontological reality that exists outside of our consciousness, right? Meaning a God. Mm -hmm. And if you believe in that, then sin makes a lot of sense, right? Because a God, if they, if that being existed would have to be the main character. And that's a problem. That's a problem for us. That's, <laughs> that's a, a big, big problem. problem. You know? Uh, uh, well, I think Stanislaw Lem said, write what you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, he, so he was like, "I'm a god, all right." Well, I, yeah, it's such um, a, it's, I, it's such a fascinating. Like, he's got such fascinating beliefs because, like, he's like, "No, no, I don't want to do this stupid science fiction inquiry." Like, like you know, where God's like our best friend or whatever. I'm gonna. What if God's a complete alien, unlike human beings anyway? You know who's best to write that? Me, a human. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's just amazing. Yeah, it's all we. Got. I understand. I, mean, I don't blame him. I just think it's a funny. It's a it's, funny gap is, he's trying to cross, you know? It's one of the posits of a lot of sci-fi. Yeah. Is, yeah. We got to prove 
that the world is indifferent. I fall victim to that romance too. We all, all the time. do. We talked about Alex yeah. Garland. Uh, we talked about the Coen brothers. Um, you know, there's a lot to be said about it. And you're right that stories are little propaganda machines. Uh, and that's why we love the them so much. Here, here's the thing to me and what I think gets to the heart of like what I think Soderbergh's version okay, cool. is, is that even if we all the last 30 minutes, we answer definitively all the above questions. Mm-hmm. It seems true, and I love that Soderbergh does this, which is kind of a digression from the other works. It seems that emotions will drive us away from any of those answers because things like, quote, like being lied to seem to render any other thought experiment. It really does. We just get angry and we do something drastic and we stay on Solaris. We go against our better judgment. Because we cannot live a that's lie. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. A known, I mean, a known you said lie. Said it straight yeah, up. Yeah, front. a known lie. I no, I enjoy that. If, if you there, if certainty of lie, nope, we're nope. And I think that that's what um, I think that's kind of a lot of the he he kind of does a lot. Like I think the and this goes to Lem as well. He does a lot of like ex, like things to distract you. Um, like one of the ones that distracts you near the end is the poem by Dylan Thomas. Yeah. It's called, I believe, and death shall have no dominion. It the yeah. gist is basically a poem about lovers dying, but the love persists. Something survives. And I think the movie is trying to say that that's quantifiably memory. Uh, and it's results are things like, yeah, okay. grief, but also things I like I can love. accept that. That makes a lot um, of sense. And therefore perception is basically everything. Uh, and so if we are told then that your perception, the thing that you thought that's a lie, that is a absolute betrayal of the very conceit that makes us all human. Do not allow the reality, the, the lie of reality to convince you. If you allow it to convince you, then you are no longer a part of like this commune. So this people. is a tragic this, tale. This, it's a tragic tale about human the tragedy of being human about being yeah. powerless. Mm. Oh, I think that. Oh, I think, yeah, I like I that know. read. Oh, no, no, for real. I really like that read. I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I think yeah. he, I don't think that Soderbergh is making a strong enough point to say to, to, I think he's sort of like more like laying out that terrain. He's sort of like organizing this, the feelings along the lines of, you know, would it be like sort of a would you rather this or that? It kind of, it all, all kind of comes down to how you read that ending. Yeah. Is, is the Solaris like deal? Is it preferable? Is it to good or sometimes? bad? Right. Is it good or bad? Does he like it? Is it, I mean, here's the thing. He is now a clone. What, what is, who are we to ask what's the nature of a clone? At that point, he skipped the, the, the realm of what's human as uh viola davis said they're not human you have to understand that. that's true uh yeah. because if she because if he doesn't understand that you are living a lie to me and that lie cannot stand it has to be eradicated mm, maybe that's why i like um, viola davis and that is what humans that's what humans do dude it, our perception the second it's threatened it's just like fuck 
anything else. And I think that that's why we viscerally answer questions like the matrix question or, you know, living with doubt or is powerlessness comforting or can powerlessness be comforting? I think all these questions are just dressed up different uh, versions of there are no answers. That one choices. Could you live with that? <laughs> well, you've done a really job. Right? You've done a great job uh, of rendering right. that that question and reading it that way. I, and I think this is a good test case for that. Uh, just to finish a sentence I was saying, I think that's why I like Viola Davis's character in this movie, because she is kind of a, she is kind of an idealist and uncompromising. And I, I respect those people. I think those are interesting people. Uh, Whereas George Clooney's a little weak. I mean, let's be honest, right? Like he's a little bit weak. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and I that's and I know that's a judgmental word, and maybe it's because I don't have another word that's less judgmental for it. But it does seem like I mean, it, we do see him with his diapers on. I mean, he literally says to a woman who we know. I mean, this is the motivation for why she kills herself. Why would I want a child? Why would I want anything that brings life into this house? Imagine your significant other said that to you. Right, but but let's remember the he said it in an angry way, like meaning he wanted the opposite. Right, like he was like. That was a sarcastic question. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he was doing it kind of sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, like, imagine they they're pinning all of your heartache and all of the problems and fissures into you, you as Rhea, You are not allowing us to be happy. Right. You're you an are obstacle. Not allow- you're not bringing life to me. You are an obstacle. That's an unreasonable thing to say. Of course I it mean, is. I don't know. Maybe. Of course it is. Maybe it's not an unreasonable thing to say to any particular person. It's just completely like you have decided to pull the parachute at that point to me. Uh, really? And you know he's, he's making a huge mistake and he's reliving really? that. Oh, yeah. Like if you say that to your significant other, if I was your significant other, I would be like the fact that you say that regardless of my fault here, this is over. Wow. Really? Yeah. Uh, I thought yeah. that seemed like a, a intense fight, but it was something they could have come back from. I don't think I could personally. Come uh, so, back from so that. like that, I think that tells me that Abe is less compromising about the nature of reality than uh, your average lover. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Almost definitely. That's good. I like that about Almost you. Almost definitely. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's just uh, that's those are literally just words I thought to say when I thought that. No, no, so. but uh, that's a get a clinical Clooney. That's great. I really yeah. enjoy. I mean, yeah, I think that Clooney. It's it's so interesting because he kind of already knows what's coming. Like he's he's the only person that entered into the situation and knew what was coming. You know, everybody else was surprised by the visitor, right, and had to deal with it. Like when it was like a gut punch, he knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't know who, but he knew it was. Yeah. And, but if he'd done any introspection, I think he probably could have figured out who it was going to be. You know, probably. Could, uh, yeah, and yet, like, oh, it's probably my dad. I mean, yeah, but it's not like he resisted uh, for a hundred years. You know what I mean? He no, resists for like he, uh, 15 he minutes. He put her out the airlock just, just the, the once. once. Just That's the right. Once. Just the once. It's not like he's tossing all dead Reyes right. into space. Like, yeah. That's the thing is she's out there. That's my one of my favorite things that Viola Davis also mentioned. Me too. It's like, what do you think is going on with her right Me now? Me too. Just to give a little bit of like horror to him, just to like throw him off. It's almost like a, it's like a, te- it's like sand in the face tactic when they're debating. It's like, what do you think? What do you think you did when you ejected her out to space? You think she's dead right yet? You know, it's just like, she fuck. was a great character. I like, I really, Such like now by contrast, I really didn't like Jeremy Davies character much. 
uh, or the yeah, acting. Yeah, so there. that's the snow. Didn't, didn't like yeah, it. Yeah, he's all over the place in every role he does. Yeah. Sometimes it's very good. Some in this where it's a little bit more grounded, he feels mm, kind of like a caricature because yeah, he, the, he yeah. stops himself in the middle of his sentences and. <laughs> I mean, I understand that that really does express the kind of seriousness of the tone because there's some of these questions and some of these answers are ineffable, right? There's something that couldn't, it's like, I don't know what to say. Like they're too big and that makes you feel powerless. And so he is kind of caught by his own caveats, his own function of language. He doesn't know what he is. There's so much going on with the character. It's a good character. I, I just but, don't yeah. like the acting. I do man. think he... Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it was a little bit too much relative to other yeah. players in the in the just in for the me play. It was, for me it wasn't um, great, but it is his thing. Like you know, he has a thing. You know, like just like Christopher Walken has a thing. Uh, that's his. Yeah, that's yeah. His thing, I mean, you know? and it's clearly coming from him, yeah, not from yeah. a. It's not like a put on. So I'm not saying that he's bad acting. No, 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 no. I would. Yeah. I actually think he's 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 got something that like when it when utilized really correctly, uh, is yeah, really agree. powerful. Uh, he's been in a lot I of. I agree. Good stuff. I liked his uh, when he, his turn as Charles Manson actually, uh, and yeah, also you I know, saw that. Sam Private Ryan, obviously. Um, in any case, I think we can. I ask yeah. you a question about this. So, like, yeah. imagine, uh, imagine you encounter this consciousness, right? Like you're on a ship mm-hmm. and you encounter this consciousness. Uh. What is your natural like? Like, is that in any way a category blower for you? Like, like if you're out there and you see Solaris and know that it exists, does that in any way ruin your idea of what reality is? No, no, that wouldn't trouble you. I would find that troubling. That there's a super powerful being that can manifest objects into time and space. Oh, not at all. That doesn't bother you. I think that I think our limited perception doesn't ensure that things like that magical things aren't true, but we are magic. There's no denying that humans are magic to me. Yeah. Like to another, to an ant. And that's just on our planet, man. So imagine what the cosmos has in store. So like, yeah, it doesn't bother me. It's, I think it's a very scientific belief. In fact, to have faith that there is most likely given the probabilities Amazing life out there, that, uh, but that we was don't an have argument. Proof of it, and we that prob- was an argument that George Clooney said uh, that I found it sort of made me raise my eyebrows. Like that, we're the we're the sort of like mathematical inevitability. Uh, I that's the thing. I'm like, I don't know if that's true, but I but I it did sort of reinforce his uh, his unwillingness to hear anybody but him. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so in that way, I thought it seemed true that he would say it. But, uh, like, they kind of just glossed over it, and then she stopped listening to him. And I was like, I understand why she feels that way. <laughs> yeah, she's like, that's some nonsense. Yeah. Don't don't let that make decisions for you. What do you really feel like? Which I understand well, that. I, I also like the thing I that you said, that. Um, that, like, these arguments sort of always fall by the wayside the minute there's emotions involved. Um, which is a, yeah. by the way, that's like a David Hume belief. Who's like the ultimate sort of, I want to, I love Hume. Him, I do because, because Hume is extremely rational, like uncompromisingly yeah, rational, uh, to a point where you realize like, oh yeah, that's as far as we can go in some ways. Uh, I think he's really good at outlining the, that, mm. 
Um, so he, that's a point he makes, right? Is that like morality is fundamentally uh, emotional and, and irrational, which is a thing I think is true. Right. And uh, I also think that's why Lem, like Lem's inability to connect to that as a writer is why this has been made really well into movies and why uh, he hates the mm-hmm. movies. <laughs> like he, he fucking hates yeah. them. He thinks they're bad. And I'm like, nah, man, yeah. they just understood your material better than you did. Apparently, he signed off on the first version, the made-for-TV version, but I don't... I haven't seen it, these nor are do both, I care to. These are both excellent movies. Like, they're really good yeah. movies. And it's like, dude, you're too attached to your own ideas Just, here, man. You're too attached yeah. to... Dude, talk, writers, man. <laughs> writers. <laughs> oh, shit. We could tell stories. We could tell some stories. <laughs> we could tell some we stories. Could. Well... Writers could tell better stories, though. Yeah, that's the fucking problem. They shouldn't get podcasts. <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. They sh- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's not yeah. collaborate and be artists <laughs> together and do the greatest ideas and create the greatest stuff. Let's but, hate but, each other because of our Here's jobs. the problem. You and I decided to cross the threshold and become writers one day in 2009, I want to say it was, when we... Mm-hmm. This is like early on in our friendship, like like... We're like what six month pals at that point, maybe like a year. Mm-hmm. And we sat down and we like we're like we got to write a we got to write a screenplay because there's a school competition, and we basically drank beer and fell asleep and didn't write anything. And then the next morning, got up and wrote a twelve page script called Alternative Medicine. That That's we right. wrote it in in what three hours, right? Uh, it had to be longer than that. It but was, it was pretty, pretty quick, quick. and like. It was mostly on a porch. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I went back and reread it. I don't hate it. I don't hate it that much, Abe. So maybe we, maybe we don't get to make uh, fun of writers that much. Maybe we don't get to anymore. Because we did we're it. Writing. We we did it. No, I can make fun of myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Uh, I don't hate yeah, it that man. much, Abe. It's dumb, but I don't hate it that much. I don't hate it that much. Well, I mean, it's all the same stuff, right? right? We just want to, yeah. But that's. This is all very. This is very like who cares? Us, yeah, who yeah. gives a shit? Uh, yeah, but I like talking about it. Uh, yeah, all of this yeah. shit, all of this shit—the philosophical meanderings of two dumbasses. Sure. But I mean, that's where it started. Who the fuck is Stanislaw? I think it's satisfying the request of the movie, which is to, you know, uh, contemplate the nature of uh, memory and meaning, and. Uh, god and uh the the limits of perception i think those are big fucking questions huge themes yeah but they're huge ones that's why this is remake yeah you could remake it but it's i think it really says something that a film of this small size can get that big you know oh in fact some of the best questions come from the humblest of films yeah i love this because they are allowed to just focus on the one thing as opposed to be you know slave to the masters of entertaining heist films that's right yeah that's right um, i mean again not to i know that i love soderbergh too much but like his versatility and the effortlessness of uh of his storytelling um, I, he, he's just very impressive. I continue to be very impressed by him. Yeah, very impressive. Yeah. He's he's very good at it. Another guy who understands tone. And yeah, really. Like we really could have talked way. a good hour and a half about the montaging in this film, like the way that he just like dips in and out of scenes right. so seamlessly, and yet 
and sometimes even not clearly describing what exactly is happening, and yet it, the emotional content completely clear all the way through. Mm-hmm. It's like pretty impressive. Very good, and I want to thank again, Tom. Thanks, Tom job, D. Tom. Right, good Tom suggestion, D. Right? Tom. Yeah, Tom, Tom D. D. Yeah, Tom D. You did some. You did some great stuff. I want to yeah, do two things. One. I want to find because I can have to. I didn't have time to research this right okay. before, but I found literally before we started recording the following trivia okay. on IMDb. Great. I'll read it in okay. its entirety. According to Insane Clown Posse, <laughs> they never received what? any royalties from the makers of this film for their use of the song Riddlebox. I don't remember an insane clown posse I, yeah. song, wow. but I wish it was the theme. <laughs> I like that they're kicking up a stink about it. You know, yeah. oh, of course. I mean, if they didn't give credit to him and they use their song, they they are at one hundred percent right. Yeah. I just prefer to think of Steven Soderbergh, Fame Juggler. <laughs> that is what I want to leave this conversation yeah. with. Do you not? Yeah, no, um, a, a, a worthy image to depart our contemplation on. <laughs> the other thing is, uh, you asked earlier, like if if you were in the situation where you saw Solaris, you know, you saw a big vast ocean that was uh, sentient and powerful. I thought you were going to ask me what I would do because then we could really. Get I was curious what you'd do because what yeah. I would do, I'd take a dip, baby. <laughs> he goes, let that sentience go right up my armpits and into my. That nose water looked very stairs. thick. Like mucusy, it looked kind of mucusy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let the let the sentient mucus get all up in my in my, in all of my. my it's, maybe my it's like a flubber. Like yeah. suddenly you're like bouncing and flying everywhere. Yeah, dude. Let's stop this before it gets too erotic. <laughs> flubber is a line for you. Yeah, that's, that's a, a sensitive line spot for, for old age. Yeah. This yeah. is great. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, hopefully that was entertaining. I don't know if philosophical waxing poetics by two dudes is, but you know, we did we our are. best. And that yeah. was that. And thank you. Subscribe to Small Beans. We're Bye. out. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The beans always have new ideas percolating. So make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash small beans. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash small beans. Where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the small beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!